0: Turning to Daniel chapter 5, let me briefly remind you uh, where we are, what's going on. Outside of the city of Babylon, the Persians are laying siege. Uh, The Babylonians haven't been too worried about this because their city is a marvel of strength and protection. Uh, Babylon was considered unbreachable. And the Babylonians have enough provisions within their city to last them for years. And so life is just continuing as normal for them within the city. But unbeknownst to the Babylonians, the Persians have come up with this ingenious plan. And even as this chapter, Daniel 5, is playing out, the Persians are redirecting some of the water from the Euphrates River to make it possible for for men to make it into the city through uh, canal tunnels, and before this night is out, the Persians will attack. But there will be no, there will be no battle. Uh, the Babylonians inside the city are in the midst of a festival, a festival marked by partying, uh, a festival marked by drunkenness and sexual immorality and all kinds of vulgarity. Uh, King Belshazzar is throwing a royal feast. We're told that there are over a thousand lords in attendance. The drinking has already begun, and in his folly, the king calls for the holy vessels which were taken out of the temple in Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He calls for them to be brought out. And using those vessels, the people continue to get drunk and to worship these pagan gods. Suddenly, a hand appears and begins to write on the wall of the palace hall. And as you can imagine, the king is suddenly overcome by fear. And so he calls all his best advisors, but none are able to explain to him what has been written or what it means. And finally, the queen mother informs Belshazzar of a man who had been very valuable during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, a man named Daniel. And so Daniel is brought before the king and is made aware of the king's offer. The king has promised riches and power to the man who can explain to him the writing on the wall. And so we're picking up tonight in verse 17. So look with me there, Daniel 5, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Stop there. So as you can see, Daniel holds nothing back. Uh, This king has been overcome by fear due to this strange hand and this strange writing, but Daniel is not afraid at all. Uh, Remember, Daniel is no longer a figure in the Babylonian court. He's no longer a high official or a, a trusted counselor. Daniel's confidence and his courage here Come from his faith in his God. That's why he's able to stand before this king and deliver the hard message that this king needed to hear. As I said this morning, Daniel isn't being rude towards this king, but he also doesn't pull any punches. He clearly lays out the facts that stand against this king. With Nebuchadnezzar, there was always a sense that Daniel had a bit of affection for him. That, that Daniel, while he recognized that Nebuchadnezzar was a, a pagan king, he at least admired some of the wisdom and the shrewdness and the, uh, the, 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 the good leadership that he saw in Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, when he was telling Nebuchadnezzar that he would be humbled and made like a beast, he cried out and said, may this be for your enemies, if you'll remember that. We have nothing like that here. Uh, Most believe that Belshazzar was a far less noble king than Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He was an immoral leader. He was a poor leader. And Daniel just tells it to him straight. He just gives it to him very clearly. And we can summarize Daniel's words here into three statements. So first, Daniel rebukes the king's pride. He rebukes the king's pride. And he does this by telling Belshazzar... The story of his father, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, remember, in, in these days, the word father didn't always mean your immediate father. Belshazzar was likely the grandson or great grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. But he basically says that this is a story that Belshazzar should already know. I mean, who could forget it? When the most powerful king in the universe, who also, in mean, the world, who happens to be your, uh, your granddad or great granddad, he became like, a, like an ox eating grass. He lost his mind. I guess there are some things families don't pass down to the kids. They don't share that, right? The little family secrets. But this is something that the whole kingdom knew. Belshazzar should have have known this story and learned its lesson. And yet here's Belshazzar now following down that same path. Now we hit hard on the sin of pride when we looked at Daniel 4. So I don't want to say a whole lot about it again tonight. But I do want to encourage us to all assess ourselves, and to make sure that we are warring hard against this sin of pride. In his book on prayer, J.I. Packer urges us to ask for God's help in examining our own lives in order to expose the pride that's in our hearts. And Packer gives some sample questions that we might ask, and I gleaned from his and then uh, edited them and put together some of my own. And so I have a brief list here of some questions that you can ask yourself to try and honestly assess where pride might be trying to rear its ugly head in your life. And so if you find that you don't like the answer that you have to give to one of these questions, write it down. Take it to Jesus tonight in prayer, confess, repent, and resolve by His grace to strive for change. So here we go, just a few questions. Number one, am I able to joyfully perform tasks in my church that have little or no visibility? Do I feel my service to this church is valuable unto the Lord even if it's not recognized at all by others? Do I have fulfillment in serving without needing the praise of men? Question two. Do I regularly credit others for their labor? Am I quick to humbly recognize how I am served by others and to show honor and gratitude to them? Question three. Can I value and enjoy people who are not normally considered respectable? Do I find myself happy and even eager to interact with people of very different worldviews or lifestyles than my own? Do I embrace, as God-given opportunities, every interaction with people who are poor, with people who um, are vulgar and use vulgar language, people who don't love our God, person maybe who smells. Number four, are my thoughts toward the difficult people in my life infused with grace? I'm not asking about words and actions here. I'm asking about your thought life. Are your thoughts towards the difficult people in your life infused with grace? Number five, do I give my spouse or those around me the first choice of the TV channel? Do I let them set the room temperature for what is most comfortable for them? Do I consider what they want more than what I want when deciding where to go for vacation? Number six. Are my prayers usually on behalf of other people? Is a large percentage of my thought life and prayer life focused on the needs and the welfare of others? Number seven. Is it relatively easy for me to give my time or my money and tell no one about it? Do I find joy in giving of my time and my money for the service of Jesus and the benefit of others? Number eight, do I see every opportunity not as an earned right, but as a gift from God? Am I quick to recognize every good thing in my life As an undeserved mercy, a gift coming down from the Father of lights? And is my life marked by gratitude for the kind providences of God? Number nine, do I cut short thoughts of comparing myself favorably with others? When my mind begins to think of how I am better than someone else in some way or another, do I I flee that thought immediately and thank God for his blessings in my life? Or do I follow that path to boasting? Number 10, do I honor others with my thoughts and my words and my actions? Packer says after these questions, To the extent that we can honestly say yes to questions like these, we are beginning to learn humility towards others, and so we are learning to conquer the sin of pride. He goes on to say that humility cannot be fully detected or measured by direct inspection, for trying to inspect our own humility is itself a yielding to pride the most we can ever do is concentrate on negating and mortifying the various expressions of pride that we are already aware of and asking our Lord to show us what more negating and mortifying needs to be done. That is a request that the God who watches us even as he watches over us and who maintains his perfect knowledge of us in all matters where we do not truly know ourselves is fully equipped to answer. In other words, if you find that you are not humble towards God or humble towards others, go to God and pray for Him to bring you the humility that you need. He, more than anyone else, is fully capable of helping you grow in humility. So, Belshazzar is struggling with pride. But Daniel's words here in verses 17 through 23 not only rebuke pride, They also rebuke not learning the lessons of those who have gone before. Uh, Daniel points out that Belshazzar does know the story of Nebuchadnezzar and how God humbled that king for his haughtiness. Uh, He says, you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Mount Hermon. Why do you think God chose to put so much biography in our Bibles? God could have just given us the epistles, the letters. He could have just given us the the teaching of the apostles. He could have just given us the the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell us about who Christ is and what he did. But instead of just giving us what we have in the epistles or in the gospels, God gave us a Bible filled with all kinds of different literature. We have books of poetry, songs, books of prophecy, apocalypse, books of law code, more. And a significant portion of the Bible, including those four gospels, is story. So much of what we have in the Bible is is history. Telling the lives of people who came before us. Why? Well, isn't it a wonderful thing when we can learn from the stories of others so that we don't have to repeat the same mistakes that they made? The Bible is full of heroes and villains. The Bible is full of ordinary men and women who experienced extraordinary circumstances. And at the end of the day, every page of history in the Bible is given that we might either learn an example of what godly living looks like and how to imitate that, or that we might see an example of what ungodly living looks like and how to avoid it. In particular, we have stories that show us again and again this principle, that God exalts the lowly and that he Humbles the proud. Friends, it does not matter how many times we read these stories in the Bible if we do not actually apply them to our lives. How many people grew up in Sunday school hearing the story that that we're going to talk about next week, Daniel in the lion's den, or hearing the story of, of the fiery furnace, or hearing the story of David and Goliath, And those stories teach us how God cares for those whose confidence is in him. God is faithful to those who rest in him and find their courage in him. And how many, all of those stories, they teach the same principle. Faith, humble yourself, trust God, live by faith in who he is and what he has said. And yet how many of the kids that grew up in those Sunday school classes have forsaken their faith in God? They no longer stand on his promises at all. They never really did. The stories in the Bible do us no good if we don't actually learn the lesson and apply it to ourselves. Belshazzar knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar, but he had not taken it to heart. It's one thing to know it up here, it's another thing to take the lesson of the story to heart. And now as he is about to find out, his judgment will be even more severe than Nebuchadnezzar's. Not only can we learn valuable, uh, life-shaping, soul-preserving lessons from people in the Bible, but we can also learn those kinds of stories, those kinds of lessons from people in our own families. I wonder how many of us have godly grandmothers or grandfathers who have influenced us. How many of us have at least known godly men and women and seen their example and witnessed God's blessing on their lives? And how many of us have seen those in our own families who have walked in selfish pride and found themselves devoid of true love or true joy or true peace? But it's not enough to know those things. We see them all around us all the time. But are we actually learning the lesson? We should pray that God would help us to take the lessons and the stories of the Bible and the lessons that we see being taught and the biographies of people all around us all the time and that we take them to heart and learn to humble ourselves and trust our God. Okay, so Daniel rebukes Belshazzar's pride. He rebukes his unwillingness to learn from the story of Nebuchadnezzar, but then he also rebukes Belshazzar's idolatry. Now understand, he hasn't even read the words on the wall yet. (laughs) This is is Daniel just kind of laying it out there about what's going on with Belshazzar and why God is bringing this judgment upon him. And So we have pride, we have a refusal to learn from what God has done in the past, And now we have idolatry. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath And whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Daniel's words show how silly idolatry really is. The idols cannot see, the idols cannot hear, the idols cannot know, but the true God holds our very breath in His hands. He's saying how ridiculous to honor man-made objects that can do nothing While refusing to honor the one who gave us life, gives us life, and can take our life at any moment. We tend to look down on these ancient peoples, wondering how they could have been so unsophisticated, right? How could they worship these man-made things? But remember, what these people really loved were not the idols themselves, They loved what the idols stood for. They they loved how the the idols were honored. There was the God of wine. There was the God of sex. There was the God of of, uh, war, the God of of violence. It wasn't the actual idols that the people loved that much. It was what they stood for, and the practices that they stood for. And now we may have replaced representative images made of silver or wood with other kinds of representations, but we still see people running hard after these very same things. The difference is in our day, our gods who stand for those things, they actually move on screens, right? Despite all our modern achievements, we are no more spiritually sophisticated than the Babylonians were. At bottom, idolatry is taking that which ought to be given to the Creator and giving it to something created instead. Who should have our chief affection? What should we desire above all else? Who should have our highest praises and be the source of our highest delights? It ought to be God and God alone. But instead, we as human beings keep running to broken cisterns, to broken wells that cannot hold water. And we try and find ultimate joy and delight in these broken wells. And all they do is they disappoint us over and over again. While the God who is the fountain of never-ending water, you you can never drink Him dry. He will always be there to refresh and replenish. He's there. But we keep turning our attention and our affection elsewhere. That's the nature of idolatry. And idolatry is at the bottom of every sin. For underneath every sin is the belief that the act we are committing will bring us more fulfillment than taking God at his word. I know I shouldn't say that ugly thing to that person who's just made me angry. But in the moment, I am gripped by the idea that I will feel better and justice will be better served if I open my mouth and rip into that person. Now, who is worthy of my allegiance and my obedience? God is, not my own feelings. But in that moment, I trust my own feelings more than God. I choose to take the leadership of my own feelings rather than the leadership of what I know God has said in his word. And in that moment, I follow the greatest idol that the human race has ever known, namely self, For we tend to follow self more than anything else. This is what the Babylonians were doing. In the name of false gods, they were really serving themselves. They were serving fleshly lusts and desires. And the gods of wood and stone and silver were just a cover. They were just a justification for why they should do that. So now, after having delivered this rebuke to Belshazzar, Daniel is ready to read and interpret the writing on the wall. His rebukes were just the setup. Now comes the final word from God concerning this king. So look at verses 24 through 28. Daniel speaking to Belshazzar, verse 24. Then from his presence, that is from God's presence, The hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Mene, mene, your days are numbered. And the word is used twice to show that the king's days were really numbered. (laughs) They're at an end, right? Your, Your time has come, King Belshazzar. Tekel, You have been weighed in the balance of the scales of God and you have been found wanting. And Because you have been found wanting, Perez, your kingdom is going to be divided. The Babylonian kingdom, renowned for its glory, is going to be split up between this media Persian empire, the Medes and the Persians. King Cyrus will still be the chief ruler over this new Persian empire, but within that empire, King Darius of the Medes will now rule over Babylon. Mount Hermon, we could easily preach um, an evangelistic sermon on these three words alone, Mene, Tikel, and Perez. Uh, Is it not true of every one of us in this room? that our days are numbered? And is it not true of every one of us in this room that if we set our life on God's scales, we will all be found wanting? And is it not true that we are all therefore deserving of judgment? But Right now, we live in a day where mercy can be found. We live in a time where we can repent of our sins and embrace the Savior that God has provided for us. Jesus Christ is the only man whose life has been put on the scales of God and he has not been found wanting. Christ was found to be perfect in justice and in righteousness. And this man died for our sins and then wraps us in his perfect righteousness before God if we're one of his, if we've believed on his name. I just have to ask, are you one of his? Do you still have condemnation ahead for you? Judgment like poor Belshazzar is about to experience? Or are you in Christ, wrapped in his righteousness, your sins having been taken away? Belshazzar's time was up. And so it will be for all of us one day. It may be that the Lord Jesus Christ will come back tomorrow and all of our time will be up. Or it may be that your death day will be your last day of opportunity. But whether it's when you die or when Jesus comes back, whichever happens first, your time will be up and there will be no more opportunity to turn to Christ and be saved Belshazzar's life would be required of him this very night. He's not going to survive to see the sunrise. He's not going to see the sunrise. So also billions will stand before King Jesus on the last day. And they will fall on their faces before him. They will call him Lord and they will wait for his pronouncement. To every unbeliever he will say, You have been weighed. And you have been found wanting. Depart from me. Be cast into the outer darkness. Prepared for the devil and his angels. You're my regular Mount Hermon folks. You're here every week. You're the faithful. right? You're, you're the Sunday night crowd. That does not mean that every person in this room is a believer. It does not mean every person in this room has come to know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't, let the story of Belshazzar wake you up. He did not get up this morning thinking he would die that day. He had no clue. Let's make sure we're ready for when our time comes. So how does Belshazzar respond to all of this? Well, in the presence of all, he made a promise. He's now going to keep his word. No doubt, Daniel's interpretation is true, and so Daniel is honored. So look at verses 29 through 31. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Isn't it interesting that we saw this morning that Daniel did not care about receiving purple clothing. He did not care about a chain of gold, and yet he received them anyway. God loves to honor those who treasure him more than earthly valuables. God loves to honor those who show in their actions that he is better to them than the stuff of this world. Daniel was seeking God's glory above all earthly gain. And so God gave him favor, and he had earthly gain along with bringing glory to God. Now we might laugh at the fact that Daniel was made the third ruler in the kingdom, second in power to Belshazzar, for like 10 minutes, right? "What What does that matter? The king's about to die, a new nation, a new regime is about to take over. But in fact, God was honoring Daniel in this way as well. For though Daniel was not seeking a position of power, God gave it to him. And when Darius the Mede comes in and starts setting up his government, he decides to pull from men who are already in place. And so in the next chapter, in Daniel 6, we're going to find that Darius had a creative plan for ruling over Babylon. King Darius chose 120 uh, satraps, they're called, deputies, who would rule over the land in various capacities. And then over those 120 satraps, Darius is going to have three high officials. So Darius is the, the head man. There's these three high officials who answer to him and then these three men oversee the 120 satraps who oversee the nation. Daniel is going to be appointed one of those three high officials. And that is almost certainly because of what Daniel did on this night. Because of the office he received, however briefly, at the last minute from Belshazzar. So the takeaway from all of that is this. God always exalts those who put him first yes he humbles the proud but he exalts the humble god will never allow you to out honor him he will make sure you are honored as you seek to honor him now it may not be honor as the world understands honor but you will be honored god loves caring for his children When his children do good and obey him faithfully, he delights in rewarding them. Yes, it's rewarding his own grace at work in them. But nevertheless, it is real reward. And these rewards are an expression of his goodness and his love. It is him crowning his own character in us. Now, these rewards from God, this honoring from God, it doesn't always come in this life. In fact, the best kinds of rewards and the highest kinds of honors will most certainly come in heaven. But still, sometimes God does choose to honor His faithful servants here and now in time and history. And so Mount Hermon, don't ever doubt it. Though you may serve God in a thousand ways that go unseen and unnoticed here today, God always sees. God always notices and you will have a blessed reward for all that you do for His glory. 1 Samuel 2.30 is a promise from our God. God says, those who honor me, I will honor. I want to make one more point as we close. While it is true that God honors those who honor Him, isn't it also true that the privilege of serving God and being used by Him is honor enough? So I, I think if we had Daniel here tonight, right? If I could bring Daniel here and have him sit on this stool, and we had an interview, a Q&A time with Daniel. First of all, how fun would that be, right? But let's, let's say Daniel's here. We're having that interview. I think Daniel would say that the chain of gold and the purple clothes and the position of power, those, those were all well and good. But that the greatest honor for him was being given the opportunity to serve God and to be used by Him for His glory and the good of His people. I read recently the testimony of a pediatrician about a little girl in his local church. And y'all know I am not much of a storyteller in sermons, but I just really was moved by this one, and I thought, I'm going to close my sermon with this. So we're closing with this. This is a testimony from a pediatrician. He said, one Sunday, my wife had prepared a lesson on being useful. His wife was a Sunday school teacher for kids. Uh, she taught the children that everyone can be useful, that usefulness is serving God, and that doing so is worthy of honor. The kids quietly soaked up my wife's words, and as the lesson ended, there was a short moment of silence. Then a little girl named Sarah spoke up, teacher, teacher. What can I do? I don't know how to do many useful things. Well, not anticipating that kind of response, my wife quickly looked around, trying to think, and she spotted an empty flower vase on the windowsill. Sarah, she said, you can bring in a flower and put it in that vase. That would be a very useful thing. Sarah frowned, but that's not important. It is, replied my wife, if you're helping someone. Well, sure enough, the next Sunday, Sarah brought in a dandelion, and she placed it in the vase. In fact, she continued to do so each week. Without reminders or help, she made sure that the vase was filled with a bright yellow flower Sunday after Sunday. When my wife told our pastor about Sarah's faithfulness, he placed the vase upstairs in the main sanctuary next to the pulpit. And that Sunday, he gave a sermon on the honor of serving others, and he used Sarah's vase as an example. The congregation was touched by the message, and the week started on a good note. During that same week, I got a call from Sarah's mother. She worried that Sarah seemed to have less energy than usual and that she didn't seem to have an appetite. Offering her some reassurances, I made room in my schedule to see Sarah the following day. And after Sarah had had a battery of tests and days of examinations, I sat numbly in my office, Sarah's paperwork on my lap. The results were tragic. She had leukemia. Well, on the way home, I stopped to see Sarah's parents so that I could personally give them the sad news. Sarah's genetics and the leukemia that was attacking her small body were a horrible mix. Sitting at their kitchen table, I did my best to explain to Sarah's parents that nothing could be done to save her life. I don't think I've ever had a more difficult conversation than the one I had that night. Time pressed on. Sarah became confined to a bed and to the visits that many people gave her. She lost her smile. She lost most of her weight. And then it came, another telephone call. Sarah's mother asked me to come see her. I dropped everything and went to the house. And there she was, a very small bundle that barely moved After a short examination, I knew that Sarah would soon be leaving this world, and I urged her parents to spend as much time with her as possible. That was a Friday afternoon. On Sunday morning, church started as usual. The singing, the sermon, it all seemed meaningless when I thought of Sarah. I felt enveloped in sadness. But at the end of the sermon, the pastor suddenly stopped speaking. With his eyes wide, he stared at the back of the church with utter amazement. And everyone turned to see what he was looking at. It was Sarah. Her parents had brought her for one last visit. She was bundled in a blanket, and she had a dandelion in one little hand. She didn't sit in the back row. Instead, she slowly walked to the front of the church, where her vase still perched by the pulpit. She put her flower in the vase and a piece of paper beside it. Then she would turn to her parents Seeing little Sarah place her flower in the vase for the last time moved everyone. And at the end of the service, people gathered around Sarah and her parents, trying to offer as much love and support as possible, but I could hardly bear to watch. Four days later, Sarah died. Well, I wasn't expecting it, but our pastor asked to see me after the funeral. We stopped at the cemetery near our cars as people walked past us. And in a low voice, he said, Dave, I've got something you all to see. He pulled out of his pocket the piece of paper that Sarah had left by the vase. And holding it out to me, he said, You'd better keep this. It may help you in your line of work. I opened the folded paper to read, and there in pink crayon, what Sarah had written was this. Dear God, this vase has been the biggest honor of my life. Sarah. Sarah's note and her vase have helped me to understand I now realize in a new way that life is an opportunity to serve God by serving people. And as Sarah put it, that is the biggest honor of all. I think Daniel would echo that. He would say, yes, the purple clothing is great. The golden chain is great. The position of power is great. That's not not the honor that I have. The honor that I have is that I had the opportunity to be used by, by God for His glory and the good of His people. Mount Herman. at the end of the day, the greatest honor we have is that of being useful to God in whatever ways of service He brings our way. And so we've been talking all this time about daring to be a Daniel. Whether it comes with great reward, whether it comes with great cost in the moment, we need to embrace the honor of serving God in whatever ways he gives us opportunity to do so. Amen? All right, let's pray.